take a deep breath Take the higher road That's what they always say As if they know the way They won't take it from me But don't ever doubt yourself Cause life ain't just a dream You make your own So kick and scream The people will like With a never ending force You never had the chance So what you waiting for The day has come my friend Cause this is war heard of biomedical security state? Those terms may be new to a lot of listeners. And for me, as a whistleblower nurse that blew the whistle because of what I was seeing happening in the hospital, which completely went against my ethical principles, um, my, my eyes were just opened. Over the last few years, what I had seen and what I had gone through and subsequently what happened after blowing the whistle was all because I refused to violate the oath that I took as a nurse. And I heard my next guest speak at Senator Ron Johnson's hearing. He is a psychiatrist and he was the, he talked psychiatry previously at University of California, Irvine School of Medicine, where he was the medical ethics program director and the chairman of the ethics committee at the California Department of State Hospitals. So many times, guys, when I was going through the different changes that were coming down arbitrarily from HHS and Fauci being a talking head, I, I looked around at my colleagues and I said, guys, we don't do this. We don't, what are we doing? Like, this is completely violating our oath that we took to serve and protect our patients and to provide the best care for them. But everything this government was doing beginning in March, when my eyes were open, the two weeks to slow the spread, the asymptomatic transmission, you could kill grandma and not know it just by breathing. Um, we're going to throw a mask on for droplet precautions. We're going to test you with a test that doesn't even test for what we're testing for. I mean, it was also confusing. But when I saw Dr. Cariardi speak, it, again, for me, I was like, oh, thank God, I'm not crazy. And so... I am so excited to welcome him to the program. This is Nurses Out Loud, and I'm your host, Nurse Jody O'Malley. You can hear me every Friday at 10 a.m., and you can hear my other nurse sisters that are in this fight with me every single weekday, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 10 p.m. for an encore on America Out Loud Talk Radio. All of our shows will go to podcast a couple days later, so you can share them as well. And I am so excited to have the opportunity to speak uncensored and to get this information out. And so with that, I'm going to welcome Dr. Aaron Cariardi, 
the author of The New Abnormal, The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. So let's just get into it. What is the biomedical security state? So thanks, Jody, for having me on. It's great to be with you. Big fan of your work um, and big admirer of what you did to stand up. It's not easy being a whistleblower. You take a lot of slings and arrows. So you're one of the few courageous, um, outspoken members of the health professions that stood up to the COVID madness. So it's great to be with you. And the the biomedical security state, uh, the subtitle subtitle of my book, really refers to the blending together of three things that used to be distinct. Number one, an increasingly militarized public health apparatus. And I can talk a little more later in our conversation about what I mean by that, the way in which over the last 20 years, public health has become increasingly built on a sort of military model. The second element is the use of digital technologies for surveillance and control of large populations. And by digital technologies, I'm referring mostly to smartphones, which have been available only since 2007, right? With the first iPhone coming out that year. And we now know during the COVID pandemic, for example, that the CDC, without the permission or even the notification of the public, extracted data from all of our phones in order to monitor compliance with COVID mandates like lockdowns. And uh, this was done in many other supposedly open and free democratic Western nations, like Canada was doing this as well, extracting cell phone data that researchers have shown uh, the data is extracted in bulk and supposedly the individuals uh, connected with each of those data points is anonymous. But researchers have shown that it's very easy to de-anonymize that data and for the government, therefore, to be able to actually track individual citizens with a name and social security and so forth attached to the, the specific data point. So Canada was doing this, even though Justin Trudeau reassured the Canadian public that they wouldn't do this. It was done regardless by his government. Um, Another example of the use of these digital technologies during the pandemic were the vaccine passport systems that were rolled out in many jurisdictions, right? The idea that I have to show a QR code on my phone just to get on a plane, get on a train, go to a restaurant, return to my own country of origin. And this QR code demonstrates that I've done what the public health authorities or even private entities like employers told me to do, even uh, in including injecting a novel gene therapy into my body that I may or may not have wanted. If you would have told Americans back in 2018, 2019, that you know in a year or two, we would be doing this, I think most people Uh, in supposedly free countries would have looked at you as though you were crazy. You couldn't imagine giving up our freedom of movement, our freedom of association, our medical freedoms, our our right to informed consent uh, in order to submit ourselves to a regime like this. But under the climate of fear, after more than a, a year of lockdowns, which amounted to a kind of year long form of emotional abuse, we were ready to do just about anything to get 
a modicum of our freedoms back or to get a, a bit of normal life back. And so, so we willingly, uh, maybe grudgingly, but st still nevertheless willingly submitted to this level of digital surveillance and, uh, and control. So uh, the, the public militarized public health, the digital technologies of surveillance and control are backed up by the, the third ingredient which is the police powers of the state, right? If you don't comply, you can be severely penalized, including as happened to, um, I, I, I think both of us uh, being disciplined in the in the form of losing your livelihood, losing your, your job, or potentially losing your livelihood, having to fight for it or being threatened with the loss of em employment or the loss of professional standing uh, licensure to be a doctor or licensure to be a nurse. So what I argue in the book is that uh, this biomedical security state, even though a lot of the specific COVID policies that we may want to criticize, whether it's you know, lockdowns and school closures or vaccine mandates and vaccine passports, a lot of these things have been rolled back in many uh, locations and many jurisdictions, many institutions. Nonetheless, the whole infrastructure that was put in place to facilitate this during the pandemic is still in place, and it's going to be used in the future uh, when the next public health crisis is declared. Uh, you know, that what we have is really not just sort of a, a novel way of trying to manage a respiratory virus, but we, we have, I argue, a, a novel form or a novel paradigm of governance, of, of controlling people. And this paradigm of the biosecurity sort of model of governance requires jumping from one declared emergency to the next or continuing an emergency much longer than would be justified by, you know, scientific or epidemiological realities. So we're still in, you know, we're still in a state of emergency at the federal level that's been renewed every 90 days for the last almost three years now. It was renewed again the day after the midterm elections by Javier Becerra, the Secretary of Health and Human Services with the endorsement of President Biden. And even though Biden had a month previously uh, said on 60 Minutes that the pandemic is over, which was true. Mm -hmm. uh, it was true that the in fact it had been over for some time. So you think going into the midterms, it would have been politically advantageous for him to be able to reassure the American people, hey, we're through the worst of it, and you know we're we're, we're COVID is in the rearview mirror. Um, but when he said that, his advisors all panicked and said, no, 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 you can't you can't say that. And they tried to walk it back. And the reason they panicked is that they knew that um, you know if the president admits that the pandemic is over. He would have to, he would have to um, sundown. He would have to stop the declared state of emergency, um, and that would involve relinquishing a lot of power. Most Americans, Jody, aren't aware that the president actually gains 128 additional extra constitutional powers during a state of emergency that he can exercise or that he can delegate to unelected bureaucrats like public health officials in his administration. And, you know, as we know from history, when people gain power, they're very, very reluctant to give it up. They're they're reluctant to relinquish newfound powers. 
And I think that's exactly what we're seeing now. So they're dragging out the pandemic, quote unquote, emergency. And they're they're also casting about for another public health issue to um, to keep the the state of emergency or the state of fear and panic uh, going going strong. So we saw attempts with monkeypox, for example, to sort of characterize that as a potential threat to everyone, even though it's a threat only to small segment of the population that's engaged in, you know, very specific types of, of behaviors. Um, so the biomedical security state that we saw rolled out during COVID, uh, I worry that even though COVID is more or less in the rearview mirror, regardless of, you know, what the president is saying right now, that nonetheless, that the same kind of playbook is going to be deployed again in the not too distant future to continue encroaching on our liberties. And, um, and, and so I wrote the book, not primarily as a retrospective look back on what went wrong with the pandemic. You know, the book includes a kind of critique of our pandemic response, but more importantly, it's, it's a book uh, about the future. It's a book about where is this whole trend uh, headed next and how do we how do we stop that? How do we how do we make sure we don't continue slouching down this path toward increased authoritarian control? Yeah, I, I they immediately it was so apparent to me by looking at the twenty four seven death toll ticker and you know all of the even take away science right take away what we knew evidence based science and practices to be. Um, I, I saw it, even my 10 year old at the time was like, this is propaganda. Yeah. And, and I'm like, that's exactly right. You know, we didn't, we weren't, you know, taking people out of their homes, dead bodies, pulling them out of the homes or pulling them up off the street. They were dying in the hospital that's and, right. and it's, and, you know, to break it down for people, how do we, how do we get them not to go with the fear narrative that I agree with you is in our, you know, distant, not so distant future. Yeah. 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 That's the way to say it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think not too distant future, meaning it's, it's these sorts of uh, things are going to come back to haunt us, I think very soon. And I'm glad you mentioned the issue of, of fear, because I think that's, the first step that we need to engage in. I mean, I, I have in the last chapter of the book, some policy proposals about reforming our public health agencies, you know, that how to fix, you know, huge problems at the CDC, the FDA, the NIH, and so forth. But I, I think even more important than those things, and I, I do think those things are important, but more importantly, for each and every one of us, and, and you know, for all of our listeners here, is to overcome our fear. Right. That's one thing that all Americans can can work on. You know, you the, the problems may seem very large and, and people may think, well, I don't have a podcast. I don't have a voice. Um, I'm not a, a public a official responsible for changing public policies. What can I do? I, I'm sort of, a you know, all of us in some sense were passive victims uh, to an extent during the pandemic of things that other people were doing to us. 
But other people were only able to do that to Americans because fear was weaponized. And we now know, there's been a couple of books published on this, we now know that fear was weaponized using basically very sophisticated military-grade propaganda techniques that were deployed, again, not just by, let's say, the Chinese Communist Party or North Korea or other clearly uh, authoritarian regimes, but they were deployed also by the United States and Canada and Great Britain and, and so forth. And so we were subjected to a lot of propaganda during the pandemic that was deliberately designed to amplify our fear in order to make us more compliant and more obedient to whatever the public health authorities were recommending. And that was calculated, that was by design, and that was that was done on a on a mass scale, uh, probably on a bigger scale that's than has ever been done in history, including you know wartime propaganda during World War II and so forth. That the means of communication today with social media and the internet are much much more sophisticated um, and subtle. So we've been subjected to fear based propaganda. And uh, that's had, I think, an effect on all of us to some degree. So then the question uh, which you posed, you know, becomes really important. How do we overcome that fear? And uh, I would say the first thing is to draw uh, draw a line in the sand and, and refuse to engage in behaviors that we know are not helpful during a pandemic. So it's clear now, for example, that the evidence on Masks during the pandemic uh, showed that masks don't really help stop the spread of this aerosolized respiratory virus, that the cloth masks, the surgical masks, and even recently just a study published, you know, the last fallback for the mask uh, defenders was N95s. Well, at least maybe N95s are useful, but I just saw a very well done study suggesting that and not even N95s were not useful against COVID. Right. Um, but but the masks were a sort of symbol of of fear and a symbol of submission, if you will. Um, and a reminder every time that you put on a mask or every time you saw someone else wearing a mask, a, a reminder that we were supposedly constantly in danger. Right. You mentioned the the fear of asymptomatic spread, which is an, another myth that was deliberately propagated during the pandemic to induce fear, to literally turn every other person into a potential threat to my existence, right? Right. Um, this, is a, this is a very good way to divide society. This is a very good way um, to, to cause social isolation and stress, and, and certainly a very good way to induce a chronic state of fear. So uh, just, saying, just saying, I'm not afraid to go out um, unmasked anymore, and I, I'm not going to submit uh, to that kind of uh, pressure in the future to cover my face, mm-hmm. to become sort of anonymous and faceless in public spaces. Uh, there are probably many other things that people were avoiding. Maybe they're not even consciously aware of them at this point, but avoidance tends to become a habit. And so if we were avoiding connecting with people face-to-face, if we were avoiding going out in public, if we were avoiding, Jody, 
saying what we were actually thinking, that's a big one, right? So many people during the pandemic uh, were convinced that they shouldn't trust the evidence of their senses. This was happening all over the place in, in nursing and in medicine. Um, I, I think you've probably witnessed it as well. People who could sense, hey, something is not right here, but felt, you know, for whatever reason, to keep their job or just to just to save face and not be called names that they couldn't speak up, right? So we had for for three years very large portion of the population that was constantly self-censoring. And they were self self-censoring out of fear. So step by step, we need to start pushing back against all those avoidant behaviors, start exposing ourselves to situations or behaviors that, that we had stopped doing that are good things like going out in public, like connecting face-to-face -face with other people and like exercising our freedom in terms of speaking out and saying what we truly believe or saying, you know, talking about what we're witnessing with our own eyes and ears. Uh, so a practical piece of advice for our listeners may be start to notice when you're self-censoring, um, when you're yeah, out of fear, not saying publicly or in a small group conversation or even in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, uh, not voicing your opinion. It doesn't mean that, you know, obviously that we have to say everything that we're thinking all the time to, to everyone. There is such a thing as discretion. But ask yourself, okay, why am I not speaking my opinion here? And um, why am I silencing my voice in this context? And if it's for reasons of, of self-censorship based on fear, maybe saying, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to do that anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to start saying what I actually think. Well, that's what start... I like encourage people to yeah. do all the time was to talk and I would bring up science and I would talk about it. And even the smartest people that I loved, absolutely loved working with, who I deeply respected for their clinical knowledge, I I, I, I was like, guys, how, how yeah. can you say we're doing the best we can? Yeah. I mean, all the evidence is out there. We knew immediately from China that the the young and healthy were seemingly unaffected. And it was the older people. We we knew that. And yeah. and and we watched this. You you mean to tell me that we are a society, a global society that can go around the world within hours, essentially, and we are not affected by this virus yet? Yeah. You mean to tell me in June, like that we haven't already seen this in, in our hospitals? We we did. Um, why are we not talking about science? And the more they tried to censor it, the more I spoke up. And I encouraged people to talk and and to discuss things and even at the ridicule. And I think like you you said, you know, people were afraid. They were afraid to lose their job. Um, me, I'm afraid to lose who I am. I'm sure. not going to compromise right. who I am and right. my integrity and my values because you're coming up with pseudoscience and calling it science, you know? No, that's exactly right. And this is what we need more of. We need pe people to be more daring and to take 
the kind of risks that you t- you took f- exactly for the sake of your personal integrity and you know for the sake of waking up every morning with a clear conscience which i can say look there's nothing better than that right i lost my job but but i wake up every day with a clear conscience and i've i've been i've tried at least to be true to my convictions and to you know the the integrity of 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 good science and good medicine and fear is contagious and and we saw we saw that at work during the pandemic but i also like to point out that courage is also contagious so you've been i'm sure a light and a voice to people who were maybe a little more timid or a little more a uh, little more hesitant that saw what you were doing and that may have emboldened them to be a bit more daring or to push you know a little harder push back a little bit more and that's really what we need we need we need examples of that for others and i think every one of us is capable of doing that and being that i mean you you may be sitting in a group of people half of whom think our covid response was nonsense but let's say it comes up as a topic of conversation and the one half of the group doesn't say anything because they think mistakenly I'm the only one who thinks this way, or am I the only one who's, you know, who sees what's going on? Let's suppose one person in that group takes the risk to speak up and push back and say, hey, no, are you aware that, you know, whatever, look, lockdowns cause more harm uh, than, than good during the pandemic. And we have credible evidence that they didn't stop the spread of COVID, but they instead induced a lot of collateral damage on people's health. And maybe by speaking out or pushing back, uh, the other, you know, the, the other people on your side who had had been quiet, maybe they'll also chime in, you know, as the second or third or fourth voice uh, to, um, to to argue on that side of the issue. And suddenly, you know, you all realize I'm not really alone, and there are other people out there that see what's going on. It just took one of us to sort of break through that self-censorship, you know, blockade or wall that we had put up uh, to um, to sort of change the conversation and, and reframe things um, for everyone. Right. Yeah. I, I think that that was one of the lessons that I had taught my, my son. We, we traveled a lot through COVID. Um, everything was cheap. So I, I, I was like, okay, we're getting out of here. And I remember we were in DC and um, everybody had masks on. And yeah. I thought I had read that it was not mandated outside. And so we didn't have our mask on. And you know, I asked somebody that was walking down the street, do you guys have a mask mandate? Cause he, he was, um, his face was naked and, uh, and he said, no, we don't have to wear it outside. And I said, that's what I thought. Well, we went on this little tour where you had to walk or, you know, we, we all walked around and everybody had a mask on, including the tour guide. And yeah. I didn't have it on and my son didn't have it on. And now he's at this age where he's like, mom, let's just put, let's just put it on, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I had something that looked like panties that I, I got made literally. That's how thin the mask was. And at the mm-hmm. time I was able to get on the airplane with it. Mm-hmm. They didn't say anything. Yep. And I said, no, babe, we're not because it does not make sense. 
And so he didn't have it on. And then um, we started to notice one by one, yeah. minute by minute, people yeah. were putting their mask off. And yep. I said, see, Isn't see the power that we have. I said, we can't, you know, be followers where we know better. We can't do things just to do it. And, you know, when, when we come back from break, I'd, I'd like to talk, uh, go deeper with you and talk about what the other pandemic of 2020 was. Mm -hmm. uh, but before we do, guys, uh, visit one of our sponsors. It's Cofix RX and, you know, nasal sanitation is one of the best things that we can do to eliminate viruses or slow down any viral replication that we have. And, you know, with the holidays amongst us, you know, I encourage people to gather. I never stopped gathering, um, even in 2020. Uh, it's important to be around our families, but when we know better, we do better. And there is a povidone iodine nasal solution that you can take with you on the go. And it's called Cofix RX nasal spray. Visit americaoutloud.com and you can go to the sponsorship on the page. And again, guys, you are listening to Nurses Out Loud. It's a brand new show on America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. And I am your host, Jody O'Malley. And when we get come back, we will talk with Dr. Cariardi about the other pandemic of 2020. It's time and this is world. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. 
Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. How the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America out loud. Now we invite you, friends, to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. So what was the other pandemic of 2020, Dr. Cariardi? Yeah, so I wrote an article with that title back in October of 2020. And uh, my, my specialty within medicine is psychiatry. And this was several months at that point into the lockdowns, which started in March. And, you know, within a, a few weeks after, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, I was st- starting to notice in the clinical setting uh, the effects of the lockdowns on patients' mental health. And I was very distressed about that. And as, as the months rolled on, I became more and more distressed until I got to the point where, first of all, I was baff- baffled that so few of my colleagues in psychiatry were talking about this and talking about the adverse mental health harms caused by school closures and lockdowns. And then um, in late summer of 2020, I finally got some data. The CDC published some population-based studies that confirmed what I had been seeing anecdotally in the clinic. And so I wrote this piece to draw attention both to my clinical experience and to the data that we had at that point from the CDC, basically showing massive harms on the mental health of of the entire U.S. population. from the prolonged lockdowns and the prolonged school closures. So for example, uh, the the study looked at the month of June, 2020 and found that 11% of Americans had seriously contemplated suicide, not at some point in their entire life, but at some point in the last 30 days, at some point during the month of June, 2020, one in 10 Americans had seriously contemplated suicide. And even more concerning, if you broke that down by age, Jody, uh, college-age students, 18 to 24-year-old uh, age bracket, that number was 24%. In other words, one in four college-age students in the United States had seriously considered suicide at some point during June of 2020 uh, with the prolonged lockdowns. We saw also in that data a threefold uh, tripling of the rates of anxiety disorder of, of uh, depression, a quadrupling of the rates of anxiety disorders, and these these were uh, numbers that were disproportionately affecting uh, younger people, and you know people who are not at significant risk for COVID. They were bearing the burdens of these misguided COVID policies, and uh, you just don't see these kinds of huge leaps in psychiatric epidemiology from one year to the next. So what what we were seeing in 2020 was um, a catastrophe from the point of view of of mental health. 
folks may remember that prior to the pandemic, we had an epidemic of uh, opioid-related deaths, uh, an epidemic, in fact, of, of what some researchers now call deaths of despair, meaning deaths by either suicide, drug overdose, or alcohol-related illnesses. So we had an epidemic of deaths of despair in 2018, 2019, prior to the pandemic. Um, if you look basically over the last 20 years up to that point, between 1999 and the year 2018, still pre-pandemic, uh, drug-related deaths went from 20,000 in 1999 to 70,000 in 2018. And, you know, we were, Americans were rightly concerned about the opioid crisis. Well, what did lockdowns and school closures do to those numbers? They poured gasoline on that fire. So it went from 70,000 in 2018 to 100,000 in 2020. So we took an already terrible crisis um, where, you know, those rates had more than tripled over a couple of decades. Uh, and then we increased that again by 30% really in one year uh, because of these misguided policies. Same thing happened to alcohol-related deaths. Alcohol-related deaths went from 69,000 to 99,000 uh, between 20, uh, 2019 and, and 2020. And no, no one was paying attention to this. If you turn on the news, all you saw was the, the COVID statistics, COVID case counts, COVID death counts, no one was reporting or talking about the collateral damage, including death, um, from the the harms on people's mental health and, and the other medical harms as well were almost entirely ignored. So, so the other pandemic was the mental health crisis. And still to this day, um, there's been, I think, a, a little more attention maybe last year uh, or this year in 2022 on this issue, but not nearly enough. And when it is reported, this is another thing that bothers me about this, Jody. When it is reported, um, it's usually framed in terms of, you know, COVID or the pandemic caused this rising rate of depression or these rising rates of drug overdose. And my response to that is, no, 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 no. The virus did not cause those things. Our policy response to the virus, our decisions and our bad choices cause those harms. That's, That's a right. very important distinction yep. um, because, uh, you know, viruses don't make you depressed. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, that, that there may have been increase in anxiety and, and so forth, uh, even if we had a better, more sensible policy response. But, um, you know, it would have been... Uh, clearly much less severe if we hadn't done things like, first of all, propagate fear through psychological warfare uh, propaganda techniques. And second of all, if we hadn't have closed the schools, shut down businesses and locked people in their homes, problems were created um, but, and impossible situations were, were created for parents dealing with a child who had a disability. Um, children with autism, for example, you know, do best with predictability and routine and predictable ways of socializing and so forth. And, you know, parents of, of children with uh, cognitive uh, disabilities need help and support from outside of the home. 
you know, to manage so that things at home can go smoothly enough that the child can continue living with the parents rather than, say, being institutionalized. And uh, and I had so many parents in deep, deep crisis because the the day program or the behavioral therapy program or, you know, the socialization program that their children with disabilities would go to, they were all closed down. And the parents are trying to manage the child at home. The child's routine is disruptive, which tends to trigger, uh, you know, for those uh, those patients, tends to trigger agitation uh, and behavioral outbursts. And um, so you have, we, I, I saw over and over and over again, these terrible situations where parents just had no resources, no recourse, and again, is nobody was talking about the harms to this particular population and to these families that were just desperately trying to do the best that they could um, and having uh, no one to turn to for help. Uh, the, the issue of child abuse also is usually picked up when it's picked up uh, through school. You know, an attentive teacher right. will notice subtle signs and symptoms and so forth. So unreported child abuse and children staying in abusive homes where this or with with abusive people where the situation may have been rectified if they had been going to school and and the baseline level of abuse also increased because abu you know, abuse tends to increase when the home environment is more stressful right you have you you have a parent who's maybe prone to alcoholism and uh, and when they drink they tend to become more abusive well, we just talked about what happened to rates of uh, alcohol problems and alcohol-related deaths. You know, the stress at home from the lockdowns creates a family environment in which abuse is going to become more prevalent. Uh, there are less opportunities to spot it during lockdowns and to intervene. And, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine a more horrifying reality uh, and a, a more terrible problem to worsen than worsening the problem of child abuse. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I had talked to my colleagues over and over and I would say, guys, like, look at what we're doing. Look at what we're doing. And so many of them, like I said, we're just like, we're doing the best we can, Jody. We're doing the best we can. And, you know, so tell me about you deciding to essentially blow the whistle on what's yeah. happening. What what happened with you and where are you at today? And yeah. So um, I talked about my growing concern with lockdowns during 2020 and in 2021, my main concern, uh, certainly early in the year, were the vaccine mandates, because as a director of medical ethics at UC Irvine, I teach, to, I taught, I should say, to all of the medical students every year in their required ethics course, I taught the principle of informed consent rooted, for example, in the Nuremberg Code after World War II um, and in other international medical codes and um, in, in federal law. And when the vaccine mandate, mandates came out, we had a situation in which we had a vaccine that, uh, that we knew if you were paying attention, you knew from the outset, uh, was not shown to stop infection or transmission. So whatever benefits or whatever risks the vaccines may have had were risks and benefits to the individual receiving the vaccine. So I was never convinced by the, you know, get vaccinated for the sake of others argument because 
had we had a sterilizing vaccine that actually prevented infection and transmission, that argument may have carried more weight. Um, but with the types of vaccines that we had for COVID, uh, that argument, you know, essentially was um, was not applicable. And uh, and we had competent adults that should have medical decision making authority for themselves and for their children being forced to take something uh, which was still under emergency use authorization was still by our own federal government's definition was still experimental uh, being forced to take something under threat of losing their jobs. And I believed that this was uh, profoundly unethical. I argued in the pages of the Wall Street Journal uh, that it was unethical. The university vaccine mandates were unethical. And I focused on those because those were the first institutions to roll out vaccine mandates. And I was aware that my own uh, institution, the University of California, where I spent my entire professional career as an academic physician, I was aware that they were uh, they were planning and drafting their own vaccine mandate. And and I had been involved in all of the UC pandemic policies, uh, drafting them for the entire system, all of the UC hospitals from the beginning of the pandemic up uh, up until the vaccine mandate, where they didn't consult our, our the committee that, that the office of the president had convened that I served on. And I found that very puzzling. You know, this is this is by far the most controversial and ethically consequential of the policies that we've developed for COVID. Why were the ethicists not consulted on this policy. It just came down from on high. So, so I saw those problems. I also saw the university starting to uh, reject sincere religious exemptions. Uh, it became de facto impossible to get a medical exemption in California uh, for, for various reasons. Essentially, the medical board was threatening the license of anyone who, um, any physician who wrote uh, wrote an exemption. So um, so I saw people at the university, students, uh, nurses, staff, faculty being steamrolled by this policy. And I, I said, you know, given my position as the head of ethics, uh, I ought to do something about this, right? I just was projecting forward um, to that required ethics course that I teach every year to the first and second year medical students. And I was trying to imagine Jody standing up in the lecture hall and talking to them about the principle of informed consent, um, talking that, to them about, you know, moral courage and integrity. And, you know, if you see something going on that's wrong, you still need to say something, stand up and do the right thing. I know, I know it's difficult as a medical student, you're sort of at the very bottom of the hospital hierarchy. And there's, you know, there's power differentials and there's worries about retaliation, but ne nevertheless, you have a duty to patients, right? If, if the attending physician walks into the operating room and his breath smells of alcohol and, you know, his hands are shaking and you're scrubbed in on the case to assist and you don't, you don't say something, you don't attempt to do something, um, you know, that's, so I was trying to imagine having those conversations with the students when I myself had seen something being rolled out in my own institution that I believed was profoundly wrong and you know, not try to do something about it. So long story short, I filed a lawsuit in federal court challenging the vaccine mandate on constitutional grounds. And shortly after I filed the lawsuit, um, the university placed me on uh, unpaid suspension. And then a month later they fired me. So I lost my job, I had to leave 
you know, the place I had spent my, uh, you know, entire career as a physician. I had done my residency training there as well. So 19 years total wow. at UC Irvine. And, um, and now I'm in private practice and I'm continuing to do this kind of work. Um, just published the book, as you, as you mentioned. And so I'm doing my writing and my, my speaking. I have a connection to a couple of independent think tanks where I can, um, I can do my work. I can think and speak freely. Uh, I can publish my findings. So I'm happy to get support from the Brownstone Institute and the Ethics and Public Policy Center. So I, I've been able to replicate most of what I was doing at the university. I do miss the, the teaching of the students and residents and the clinical supervision. That's one thing that I really haven't been able to re replicate outside of the university. But, uh, you know, I'm still out here making trouble and doing my thing. And, um, you know, really now working toward trying to come up with some uh, meaningful reform proposals uh, for our public health institutions, you know, what needs to be done to uh, to reform them and to reorient them and, and, and in order to regain the public trust, because so much trust was squandered during the pandemic, there's, there's huge distrust in medical institutions and public health institutions um, today. As I'm sure you've encountered this as well, you know, people, yeah, I people, mean, have... people don't want to go to the hospital anymore. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. that's a scary place to be. I mean, for exactly. me, after blowing the whistle, you know, I'm still getting paid, Dr. Cariardi. I'm still getting paid for my work. And I haven't stepped yep. foot in there since September. Yep. You know, I mean, I'm getting about 30% less because I used to have night diff and overtime and holiday yep. pay and stuff like that. But I mean, that's, I guess, the difference from working for the federal government and working for a private institution. You know, um, I do, I am afforded, a, what I'm finding out, I'm afforded more constitutional protection mm -hmm. for my job, right. which right. I had no idea. Um, but, you know, I I did this for a reason and, and I'm hoping to see it through and I yeah. can't wait till I can talk about it. But um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, it, it comes to a point where it's like, can you look in the mirror at yourself? Can you, are you sleeping well at night and being a mother and a nurse? I mean, that was so important to me because my oath was to people, not to policy, you know? Exactly. And, and I think that's what I'm hearing from you as well, is that exactly you just had this, you, you just knew this is wrong. And and you had to do something about it and you did. And thank God, because your courage and uh, stepping out, you know, gave me more fire and more ammunition. Like, hello, guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's the director of the freaking program. You know, <laughs> oh, you got to listen to him. What's he saying? How come we're not speaking up? And, yep. and, I, yep. and I hope that like our stories really resonate with you know other uh providers and nurses because we we do have to regain trust back in the healthcare system and you know yeah i totally look i totally agree and I i'm quite certain that you have been a lifeline a guiding light to other nurses uh, other professionals or people outside of of medicine i know many people have thanked me for um for standing up and i think it it carries additional weight you know if you're a nurse or you're a doctor you're a part of the 
um, you know, the, the medical response to this to step out from what is considered to be acceptable to say out loud and, and to speak out. So I'm grateful for your witness. I know there have to be, you know, many, many others um, in this country and even abroad that are looking to the, you know, the handful of people uh, like you who have stood up and in your case as a whistleblower, not just spoke your mind, but actually tried to push back on the institution itself and to hold the institution accountable. That takes a lot of courage. I mean, it's it's brutal being a whistleblower. Um, it's it, it, the, the various forms of subtle and not so subtle retaliation that you endure um, the, the legal battles, it's a, it's a grueling experience. And, um, and it just, it, it takes, it takes someone with a lot of fortitude and a lot of courage and the willingness to persevere, keep slogging through it yeah, know, in order to do what you've done. So yeah, tremendous respect for that. No, thank you. Thank you. I, I, you know, I, I tell people all the time, it, it was my faith. It was, yeah. it was my upbringing in the church um, yeah. that I had veered away from. I, I, I haven't had a church that I've gone to in 30 years, you know? Um, but I did, like, you know, I always had a relationship with the Lord and, you know, I was taught end time prophecy. And when we when when the whole world got on board with this, I literally was like, I'm supposed to pay attention to this part, right? Yep. Something's <laughs> going on. Yep. Something's yep. going on. And I just allowed my faith every single time there was something that had to do with fear. I was like, why? Why am I what why why are right. they pushing the fear? Because I was right. like, I'm not gonna listen to the fear. I'm commanded right. not to be fearful. Yep. And so yep. that's what I would always tell other people. And, you know, and I just, I, I, I see this all happening. Um, I really don't have a lot of faith in our, that the hospital systems as we know it are, are going to change. I, I don't, I think it's yeah. a dawning of a new age. And I think more people are coming back to, you know, why we became um, doctors and nurses to begin with. And that was to really, help people holistically. And I think that's what's um, being formed in our society mm -hmm. is a parallel system, essentially. Yeah, I think you're you're exactly right about that. I've wrestled with this question. Do we try to reform the already existing institutions or do we do we accept that maybe they're they're either too corrupt or the the interests are too entrenched to dislodge and it, our energies are better um, spent toward developing new institutions, parallel institutions. And I think you're exactly right. Those, those things are beginning to develop. There's, there is a critical mass on both ends of, of doctors and nurses, but also of patients who want it, you know, so you have, you have the providers, you have the patients who both want it. Uh, and there's some creative minds at work coming up with ways to, to develop a medicine, uh, you know, medical models, medical institutions that are more, holistic that are more focused on um, on strengthening people's innate capacity and innate tendency toward toward health and healing and yeah. uh, and, and serving that rather than taking this kind of technocratic approach to just treating the body as raw material that we can endlessly tinker with and you know continue injecting 
mRNA software updates every few months uh, to the to the hardware system. I, I think that model of of health and human flourishing is deeply misguided, and it's been encouraging to see others in our profession um, also kind of taking up that that mantle. So I think you're right. I think what we're going to see developing, and we're just at the earliest stages of that, are some parallel institutions that will offer kind of a different vision of um, health and healing. And that I think that's going to be a, a really good thing. And I think there's, we're going to see a lot of patients that are attracted to that rather than to the current um, very corrupted model of medicine that's really dominated by uh, the corporate interests of uh, pharmaceutical and, and, you know, right. money, money and power, money and power. Exactly. Dr. Cariardi, how, how can people find you? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at a Cariardi, K-H-E-R-I-A-T-Y. Uh, you can find my book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Again, the name of the book is the new abnormal really anywhere you buy books online. Um, it's available on audio book is available on uh, Kindle and other eBooks. And I have a newsletter on Substack called Human Flourishing. So you can you can search for Aaron Cariotti Substack, or you can go to aaroncariotti.substack.com and sign up for my newsletter. Uh, there's a free version that contains most of the content if you just want to try it out. And um, yeah, I, 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 I'm continuing to work on the legal front on you know a couple of of other issues besides um, just vaccine mandates. So there's more information on my Substack newsletter about that. That's awesome. Guys, we had a a lot that we uncovered from propaganda, the fear-based design that it was intended to collapse our society, um, mental health issues, and overdoses, and just families, you know, being polarized against each other. I I want you guys read this book, look at what's actually happening and commit yourself to not allowing it to happen again. And, um, and, and let's, let's use our faith over fear going forward. This is where to be lights in, in this darkness. And, you know, our, our show nurses out loud Monday through Friday on America out loud talk radio very humbled to have the opportunity to all speak uncensored. And um, that's at 10 a.m. Eastern time and 10 p.m. Encore. We also go to podcast and you can download the app as well. Um, America Out Loud Talk Radio. We're on iHeart, Spotify, every single one that you can possibly think of. We're, we're out there. You can find us if you want it. This is Jody O'Malley. Your host today on Nurses Out Loud, shining a light in the darkness. It's time and